It's time for The Outspoken Cyclist, your weekly conversation about bicycles, cyclists, trails, travel, advocacy, the bike industry, and much, much more. You can subscribe to our weekly podcast at OutspokenCyclist.com or through your favorite podcatching app to listen anytime. Now here's your host, Diane Jenks. Hello and welcome to The Outspoken Cyclist. I'm your host, Diane Jenks. Thanks for tuning in today. Happy New Year, everyone. I'm back for a new season of the show, and today we begin with conversations with two guests we've spoken with in the past. First up is John Sirico. John's work is all about sustainability, safety, cities, and transportation in New York City. He melds it all up on his Street Beat blog on Substack, and today we're going to look back at some of the things from 2023, as well as look forward to his work in 2024. Then we're going to review a new book from National Geographic by photographer-journalist Rolf Smith. Last time we spoke with Rolf, it was during the pandemic, and he created some of the most beautiful and thought-provoking visions for us to gaze upon in a dark and difficult time. Now, in his new book, 100 Bike Rides of a Lifetime, he offers up great options for every level of cyclist, from the novice to the pro. It's one of those coffee table books where you can flip to just about any page and say, yeah, I want to do that. So in his latest street blog newsletter on Substack, John Sirico tells us about Hoboken, New Jersey, where there have been zero, none, nothing, nada, traffic fatalities for seven consecutive years. I think that's remarkable. But contrast that with 43 cycling deaths in New York City just across the river. We also look at what the mayor of New York is thinking, with a bit of New York City can do that too, and about the expansion of the East Coast Greenway in all five New York City boroughs. Hello, John. Welcome back to The Outspoken Cyclist. Happy New Year. Let's get 2024 started. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks, Diane. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. Always, always. And it seems like it's been a long time since we spoke. And in fact, when I looked it up, I think it was like almost eight, nine months ago, which is unusual for us. I like to catch up with you. Yeah, absolutely. Especially there's so much going on. There is a lot going on. Sometimes it seems like there isn't. Um, like December was kind of one of those months with not a lot of stuff for yes. me to do. But now it seems like it's all piling on. So I subscribe to your Substack newsletter, which I really like a lot. It's always comprehensive. It's got lots of pictures. It's fun. And, <laughs> and I enjoy it. And we will let people know how to get it. It's called Street Beat. Uh, and there were some really interesting things this time. One that really stood out to me because another hit and run was reported here in Ohio recently, Hoboken, New Jersey. Yes. What's going on in Hoboken that they've had zero traffic fatalities for, I think, seven consecutive years? Yes. Yeah. Hoboken, the kind of vision zero success story in the U.S., which in a, in a time where pedestrian deaths are back on the rise in the U.S., it really is this kind of flash in the pan. It's unbelievable. And I think for New York City, it kind of serves this almost symbolic existential kind of uh, role because it's right across the river, right? So you have this city across the river that's achieved vision zero. No one has died on their streets in a, in a traffic crash 
which is just kind of unbelievable for this long. And also it's and also a sister city of New Jersey City is now in two years, which is just kind of like remarkable. You know, a couple of years ago, their mayor uh, really decided to really get behind this. Uh, he, as a father, felt unsafe bringing his child around and really, you know, listened to advocates, listened to urban planners and designers and really went forward with a lot of just really significant traffic calming measures. So when you go to Hoboken, the most notable thing is the daylighting. So every single corner is very visible to cross uh, and you can clearly see when a car is coming and, you know, if you ask any street safety expert, they say this is instrumental, the intersections to to, to uh, reducing traffic fatalities. Explain daylighting, exactly what it is. Sure. So if you go down the street in many cities in the U.S., you'll notice that a lot of cities allow cars to park right up to the crosswalk, sometimes not completely legal, uh, completely legally. Sometimes it's, it is illegal to do that. And what you get is, you know, if you're a small child or an older person or someone who just can't see behind the the kind of fender of our increasingly larger vehicles, uh, especially with SUVs and pickup trucks, you really can't see when a car is coming down the street. Uh, so daylighting is this idea of pushing the cars back a little bit so they're beyond the kind of stop line and you can clearly see where they're coming. Now, cities do this a bunch of different ways. They use bollards. Hoboken uses a lot of bike racks. They use things in the street to physically make that corner vis uh, more visible. Uh, we see bike share in the intersections now. We see rocks. We see all sorts of different things. I've, I've really seen the gambit of daylighting measures. Uh, and again, the idea is that when you cross, you come to an intersection, you can clearly see. And also, this is great for drivers too, right? Drivers don't like that they can't see pedestrians, they can't see cyclists, they can't see, you know, all road users. So it's safe for everyone. It's safer for drivers, it's safer for cyclists, and it's safer for uh, pedestrians. So it seems to me that that's a fairly inexpensive option. You can do anything, put garbage cans in the middle, who cares, right? Yeah. Yes, and it can be done quickly. It's not this whole capital construction process. Uh, you know, it's not this mega project you need to do. It's really uh, you know, and you can also you can also use enforcement, right? You could tell uh, your traffic enforcement agents, hey, you know, this is something that we're going to, you know, crack down on more, um, you know, but I think at the end of the day, you know, every expert I spoke to has said more about the design of the streets, not as much about enforcement, that you need to design streets to be more visible in this way. Let me reintroduce you. And, and then I want to talk about what happened in New York City, which is somewhat the opposite. We're speaking with John Sirico. He is my go-to guy for New York. And and he has he's got his fingers in every little urban sustainable pie. I love it. And we're going to talk about some of the other things he's doing. So New York City did not have a good year last year. Uh, I think yeah. it was 40 fatalities. That's a really high number. I mean, I know it's a big city and there are millions of people, even so. And I know that the mayor right now has his hands full with uh, other issues like busloads of immigrants. But yes. what's happening in terms of some street calming and some some bike lanes and some of the things they're doing in New York City? Because we always look to New York to see what's happening. Yeah, I would say we had a really bizarre year and it was something I was trying to wrap my head around. You know, on one hand. And this is something that the city really, really repeatedly says it's it was a very it was incredibly safe. It was a safer year relative for pedestrians. They had one of the lowest counts of pedestrians who died on streets, which is incredible to see. Still high. It was still near 100, which is a lot of 100 too many people. But at that same time, we had one of the most dangerous years for cyclists 
in recorded history. That's, you know, 43, I think, was the last count that you quoted. So it's not only so it's just a really bizarre landscape where pedestrians are, are you know, seemingly safer, but cyclists are dying at record rates. And I was trying to wrap my head around this because it just doesn't make sense to me in a lot of ways because a safer city for pedestrians should make a safer city for cyclists. But I think that, you know, what I kind of came to the conclusion through reporting is that with cyclists, there's just so many more people cycling. We're seeing this bike boom from the pandemic really has not slowed. If you look out, you know, I'm looking out the window right now, even with ice and snow on the streets, there's tons of people cycling. And a lot of experts that I spoke with and advocates just, you know, truly believe that we're just not keeping up with that growth. You know, and now it's become kind of a, a numbers, you know, just more people are cycling. That's going to lead to more conflicts because we haven't created a safer city. I will say the things that, you know, are op make me optimistic or we're good that is, uh, you know, we're good coming from City Hall is that even though City Hall didn't didn't make it didn't meet its uh its goal for protected bike lanes, they installed they installed a record number of protected bike lanes last year, just over 30 miles. Uh, and we're seeing these projects unfold, which are really exciting to see. At the same time, almost a couple of days after I wrote about daylighting in Hoboken and uh, the Vision Zero progress, the mayor announced that they're going to start daylighting a thousand intersections a year, uh, which is really exciting. The problem is there's about fifty thousand intersections in New York City, so you got that's going to take. You got a long, a long way to go. <laughs> a long way to go, but it was it was much more than they had committed to in the in the past. The mayor clearly understands that this is an issue. I think having again Hoboken is uh, politically, I think it, you know maybe annoys the mayor a little bit. So you know they're making the movements. They're they're starting to understand. Okay, we got to make better bike lane infrastructure. We have to to daylight intersections. We have to do these traffic calming measures. I would say most advocates I spoke to are just saying it needs to be more and it needs to be faster because of this rate of growth that we're seeing. All of the infrastructure money that was sort of slated for the kinds of things we're talking about, how That's, is New York doing in terms of getting that money and putting it to work? That's a great question. I would say I've been impressed with how New York has done in terms of their applications. I was a bit worried. And you know, a part of me thinks that that infrastructure money should go to cities that don't have great active travel infrastructure, should go to small and mid-sized cities because they really need the help and the technical assistance. And great to see that Secretary Pete has really prioritized other cities, which is great. Because New York, we have a lot of money here. We can do a lot. We have the expertise. But we got a number of different grants to just really redesign notoriously dangerous thoroughfares, like really, really big thoroughfares too, not just local streets, like huge ones in Manhattan and in Queens. And then also using some of that money to help with e-bike charging, which is very exciting. Uh, that money is now get being doled out. So we're getting it in kind of different ways. But I would say it's no, it's most notably on street redesign, um, complete streets, which is something that the uh, Pete Buttigieg really cares about. You know, uh, and then the last thing is that we've we've done well on is more greenway money, which I'm very excited about because there's nothing that I love more than. Biking in a park. <laughs> so <laughs> lots of greenway, greenway money, which is great to see. So is that part of the East Coast Greenway? Are, are you hooking up? Yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. I'm still on the advisory board, so I keep close. Oh, to nice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's really exciting. Yeah, it's money. It, it's the most kind of ambitious expansion of the greenway system. Uh, but there, there's plans to, to start studying new greenways in all five boroughs, which is very exciting. That is exciting. That's really cool. I love to hear that. And I know yeah, that my, news. my friends at, at, at the East Coast Greenway are going to yeah. love to hear that we were talking about it, right? So I want to I ask some questions about e-bikes because yes. they're 
becoming more and more controversial in some places. Yes. You have the issues with batteries exploding. You had three deaths. Yes. I think it was in Brooklyn. Yes. And uh, which was a horrible, horrible. It, it made the bike business look really bad. Yes. There's a lot of controversy about where e-bikes should be, the different classes of e-bikes, whether they're dangerous, blah, 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 blah. What's New York thinking about e-bikes? It's the it's definitely the big story right now. So I'm glad you mentioned it. Um, it's something that the safety of them definitely is a big, to- big, uh, a big kind of topic right now of, of contention. I'm hoping that, you know, it's so sad to see people's lives lost, especially with these unregulated batteries. I'm hoping it is a catalyst for better batteries and a, and a catalyst for better batteries. We're seeing some really interesting pilots start to, un- to go underway where uh, NYCHA, the big public housing entity here, is going to start doing an e-bike charging pilot, which is very exciting and kind of have an area in public housing for them to go, which is, which is really cool. Um, as I mentioned, there's federal dollars to create kind of little hubs for charging, especially for delivery workers. That's really what it's for. And, you know, it's something that, uh, I think because it's gotten so much of this press, the mayor is just focusing on a lot more. And then the last thing I'll mention, I didn't mention this with the vision zero article, unfortunately, a good chunk of those deaths were on e-bikes. They were. Yeah. Uh, and it's something that the, the city's, uh, department of transportation has really made a point about. Because it's just like they've never seen numbers like this before, where they they think a big reason for the spike of deaths is because they're on e-bikes. I, you know, I think that's probably because the speed, right? So any uh, what would be just a normal crash that would, you know, maybe lead to some injury is now becoming because of the speed, you know, a fatality. So it's it's a really important conversation going into this year because it's leading to these, you know, safety issues. It's leading to these um fatalities but at the same time the growth is just is just going up and up and up so it's really a policy it's a really a big policy matter to talk through so e- do e-bikes need to be regulated better maybe i would say so from a safety perspective from the batteries i've always been kind of thinking it's a good idea to expand bike lanes so there's a, a lane for e-bikes and a lane for maybe other users uh, if we oh, interesting. Wider yeah. bike lane. That's another thing that the, the city's been looking at. They've widened a couple bike lanes on some avenues, which is very exciting. Just so you have like a, a kind of passing lane. Uh, right, right, right. Thing that riders really don't enjoy. I did a story last year talking to a lot of riders about e-bikes on bridges, mopeds, all these things, because all the users are just using these bike lanes now. And a lot of bikers are really uncomfortable with speeds of that of that nature right next to them. So it's a space issue. Uh, you know, it's a it's a safety issue, but I think there could be smarter regulation around safety around how we design our streets. I do think that e-bikes are here to stay and they're only going to grow in terms of their usage. Um, and we got to figure out how do we kind of update our cities to this new inter- in- invention. I like the idea that there will be places like e-bike barns, you know, to store yeah. them so that yeah. you're not trying to figure out, oh, I'll put it in my garage and my house is going to blow up or something like yes. that. I, I think people might be worried about that after reading especially articles like the one mm-hmm. of the of the uh del whatever it was a deli or something it was down i i just remember seeing the photograph going oh my goodness yeah it, it was terrifying and and i have to admit we have an e-bike my husband has an e-bike uh he isn't riding it much <laughs> you know well of course there's ice and snow right now of course he's not riding it much but yeah, me too <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, you guys did get some uh, weather as we. So I actually just bought one myself. Like, did you? Uh, yeah, I bought a Rad Power bike. <laughs> and a boy. I got a great deal. It's a hybrid, so it can go both 
you know, analog and electric. You ride a lot though. You commute on your bikes. Yeah. Well, so there was a couple of reasons for it. I use a lot of the city, but the bike share, the city bike electric. That was my question. Go ahead. And um, I love them. I use them for a lot of different things. The prices went up a bit. So I, because uh, they're funding a lot more e-bikes in the system and they're really expanding a lot. So they need more money to do that. And I was kind of like, you know, I want my own bike to just kind of detach from always needing that as my only way of getting around. So bike share includes e-bikes? Yeah. Aha. When did that happen? Yeah. So it happened about, I think, three to four years ago. Wow. We didn't talk about that. Oh, it's. I think it was one of the main drivers of e-bike growth because so many people were exposed to it. Oh, wow. It can go so much faster. Um, and that led to, I think a lot of people being interested in buying them, but now you'll see at least, I mean, every single dock has a couple of them and they're, they're on average, so much more used than the regular bikes. Huh? How are they keeping them charged? Um, so that's, that's a big issue for city bike. They have to go around and take the batteries. They just take the battery off. They don't have to take the whole thing. Oh, and off. just replace it and then take the battery. Yeah. And charge they don't it. love I doing see. that because that means they have to drive vans all around the city, sure. which is not great. And, you know, just keep pulling these things off. Uh, they just announced a new pilot, which was kind of their big expansion announcement that they're going to try charging them through the docks, which actually they do in Paris. Uh, the docks charge the bikes. Um, it just takes a lot of electrical work. Why not? Right. More, more stuff. More yeah, stuff. Okay. So uh, let me reintroduce you one more time. And then I want to talk about what's happening in 2024 with you and with New York. We're yes. speaking with John Sirico. He is the author of Street Beat. We are going to give you a way to subscribe to his newsletter. It's really interesting. I always find good things, not only to read, but to take away to help me with my work, which I really enjoy. And 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 it's it's well written, which I also everybody knows I appreciate good writing, uh, mm-hmm. and really don't appreciate bad writing. Yes, <laughs> right. Agreed. So, uh, what is going to happen in twenty twenty four? You're going to be teaching one class, you said, a semester. What are you teaching now? I teach a city focused journalism class, which is a lot of fun. So I try to convince the younger generations of journalists to care about cities and to care about urban planning and to care about the exact issues we're talking about, to to success. I find that they're very excited to talk about housing and transportation and sustainability. Um, So I always love teaching this class in the spring. And then otherwise, uh, writing stories, and I think most notably working on a a book, which I've never done before. Um, I'm helping. uh, Yeah, it's extremely hard. I'm already (laughs) finding that hard. It's way different than anything I've written. I've never written anything of this format, but I'm helping... um, the the co-founders of Street Plans, uh, a, a big firm here in New York and some other parts of the country, to write a sequel to their book on tactical urbanism, which they wrote about ten years ago. Uh, and this this is the movement that is you know whether it's citizens or whether it's governments, you know, doing pilots and demonstrations to show people what's possible through streets, whether that's pop up art, pop up public plazas, pop up bike lanes, activations in public space. Uh, you know, Mike and Tony, the the two co-founders wrote this book in 2015, and they asked me to come along 10 years later to write a sequel to the book, especially, especially in the wake of the pandemic, which really showed us tactical urbanism in terms of, you know, pop-up bike lanes, outdoor dining, outdoor seating that just appeared kind of overnight. And that was going to be the next place I was going right there from what you were saying. And that is about how much from the pandemic has stayed in place with things yes. like outdoor seating, outdoor planning and that. 
Yeah, I mean, we're going to dedicate yeah, we're going to dedicate a whole lot of the book to the pandemic because it was the biggest event for cities in terms of this movement for that we have ever seen. You know, the original movement of tactical urbanism was really in the wake of the Great Recession, right. uh, where cities just didn't have that much money and people really wanted to see change after this obviously seismic event. And it's really about quick build. It's about pilots. It's about demonstrations to kind of, you know, advocate for more long term change. Well, I'll be anxious to read it. When is it due to be published? Hopefully around this time next year. Awesome. Awesome. Oh, good. We'll have something January of 2025 yeah. to talk about. Hopefully that, yeah. <laughs> if all goes well, if all goes well. Oh, it will. It will. And well, you've got three people now, right? Yes. We got a, we got a dream team, so. Oh, a dream team's always good. All yeah. right. Well, you got any plans? Um, let's see. At one point you were in Italy, as I remember. So what are you planning for travel this year? Anything? This year, uh, the major thing on the docket, well, first I'm getting, um, I'm having my wedding this year, so it's a lot Oh, well, going. congratulations. Yeah. So uh, me and my wife, we've uh, been married for, for a year or two, um, but um, we, we're going to have a proper uh, wedding party uh, at the end of the year. So that's kind of taking up a lot of my attention. But otherwise, I'm going uh, to a friend's wedding uh, in Ireland, which I'm very excited about. Yeah, that'll be fun. That'll be fun. Well, it's always great to catch up with you. And uh, I would like you to tell my listeners how they can follow you and keep up with you too. And all your social media too. Yeah, sure. So you could follow my name, John Sirico, on Twitter, on, on Instagram. Uh, to follow Streetbeat, uh, it's on Substack. If you just type in streetbeat.substack.com or just Google Streetbeat, it'll come up. It's also on all those social media profiles. And uh, I put out an issue, a newsletter once a month at the end of the month. Right. And I just read the last one, which is excellent, which is what reminded me, I got to talk to John. <laughs> Thanks so much for talking with me. As always, I enjoy what you're doing and how you kind of put it out there. So uh, we've been speaking with John Sirico. It's streetbeat.substack.com. And we will put it all up on our website. Thanks so much, Diana. Great, Always great having uh, been on the show. Thanks. And you have a great day. You do. All right. Bye. My thanks as always to John Sirico for joining me on the show today. I really enjoy speaking with him. And if I lived in New York City, I'd for sure sign up for his journalism class, even though I'm probably a little bit older than the average student. You can follow John on social media at John Sirico and subscribe to his monthly newsletter at Streetbeat. .substack.com. Let's take a short break, and when we return, we'll speak with Rolf Smith about his new book for National Geographic, 100 Bike Rides of a Lifetime. You're listening to The Outspoken Cyclist. We are back on The Outspoken Cyclist. I'm your host, Diane Jenks. I wanted to get this conversation to you before the holidays, and then it occurred to me that in the throes of winter, with thoughts of spring and planning for rides this year, Ralph Smith's new book, 100 Bike Rides of a Lifetime, might just be the sunshine you want to sweep you away. 
While he's ridden many of the routes he details in the book, he depended upon seasoned riders to fill in the blanks on rides that he believes fit the description, but which he hasn't done himself. The book is definitely a great addition to your cycling library and might just be the ticket for your next adventure. I've also added a photo of his narrowboat on our website, OutspokenCyclist.com, that will be his home for the next project, as you will hear in our conversation. Hi, Ruff. Welcome back to The Outspoken Cyclist. Thanks for joining me. How are you? Oh, not too bad. I'm really glad to, uh, really glad to join you. Yeah, I'm glad you could join me, too. And the last time we spoke was mid-pandemic. And yes. you actually created a really cool photographic story of your solo trips with your bicycles. I can remember the one we used on the website of this kind of misty scene with the bicycle in the water. It was really, really nice. And now this is really cool. Uh, my husband's in love with it. National, You work a lot with National Geographic. You have a new book, 100 Bike Rides of a Lifetime. And really, it's a beautiful hardbound book. So let's talk about it. Give us some background on this book. It's different from some of the other things you've done. Yeah, it is. I, I was talking with the, with the uh, books people, and they're putting together a series of books about really great aspirational experiences, um, you know, the 100 greatest dives, the 100 greatest ski runs and hikes. And, and um, they had this idea of doing one on bike rides, and I was all for that. And when I first got the assignment, it seemed like, well, I mean, this is easy. 100 bike rides? You know, how can you go wrong? And, you know, the problem is, you know, there's a lot more than 100 and you keep researching and you finding things and new, you know, and then it became a, a, a big exercise in, in, in cutting them down because you wanted them all over the world. And it didn't want to have just just for road cyclists or just for mountain bikers or or just for people who wanted expeditions. I wanted something for everybody so that everybody of every skill level of every interest in cycling can open that book and find something in there that they think, oh, hey, this, this could be kind of nice. In fact, actually, I would like it if, you know, people who maybe aren't even into cycling can look and see and read about some really, really lovely spots of the world. Uh, I gave a copy of the book to a, a good friend of mine who's, uh, he's into motorcycles and he wants to go motorcycling over those passes in Europe. And he was wrapped in the book. You know, he um, he has a bicycle too, but his his big thing is his motorbikes. But so I'm hoping there'll be something there for everybody. And um, like they say, there's there's day trips and there's some pretty serious expedition trips. Some of them are are just gorgeously easy rides, and there's a couple in there that are absolute monsters. <laughs> there are, there are. Well, so you didn't actually take all of these trips yourself. Not all. I've been on quite a few, actually. Okay. I'm not a I'm not a mountain biker, so those descriptions of the mountain bikes. I I I mean, I spoke. If I didn't go on them, I found people who did. So I mean, I'm not writing off of just guesswork. I took a lot of time and effort to find people who actually had ridden these um, rides, and anyway, some of the mountain bike rides, I can understand the, the the sheer spectacularness of them. But there is no way I would get on a bike. And, I mean, there's one there called the Whole Enchilada in Utah. And, you know, 8,000 feet of vertical drop down these, I mean, absolute hair-raising. And, you know, I had people telling me they did it. And incredible enthusiasm. And, you know, no, no. That's what I'm not doing, never doing, not even thinking about doing. But it's one that, that it wrote itself into the book. I mean, 
if you're going to have something for everybody, you've got to have something like that. I mean, that sounds like it's a fabulous ride of a lifetime. And then others I, I found, you know, because again, I wanted people who had ridden these rides. And there's one around a, a very remote, very high altitude lake in China. And it looked gorgeous. And, and you know, the, the, the Chinese have developed this, this route as, um, I thought, I'm never going to find anyone who's actually done it. But sure enough, I was in the, the, the Pyrenees with a uh, former pro cyclist. And uh, I was saying, you know, just talking about rides. And he goes, oh, you should try this one in China. It's around this lake. <laughs> He's done it. Serendipity. Yeah. And, you know, the thing is, if you, if, well, as you would know yourself, if you, if you know a lot of cyclists, right. you'll find somebody who's been everywhere. You know, there's no place out of reach of a, of a person on a bicycle. Right. And uh, so, uh, yeah, they're, they're, there's a, a good mix in there. Let me reintroduce you real quick. We're speaking with Ralph Smith. He is a journalist. He does a lot of work with, for National Geographic. His new book, 100 Bike Rides of a Lifetime, is just out, The World's Ultimate Cycling Experiences. It's a beautiful coffee table book. You're going to want it, and you're going to want to do a lot of these rides. The book is interesting. It's divided into three parts, the Americas, Europe, and then Africa, Asia, and Oceania. Now, you did not only the writing for each of the rides, uh, the the actual um, copy, but you also give some interesting hints and ideas. You highlight you know, some insights and advice along the way. Give us a little insight into each section and then tell us uh, how you decided to break out some insights and, and advice. Well, some of them uh, just came naturally because I've done the rides and, and I remembered things that that I hadn't expected or were, or were you know, just a serendipitous fun. Others came from people, again, I would talk to people about various rides, ones that I hadn't done and, you know, and, and ask them, you know, what, what surprised you? And and also, again, I've traveled a lot in, the, in my line of work, uh, whether on bicycles or not. So a lot of these places, even if I haven't been on the rides, I've I've traveled quite extensively in those areas. So I had a, a pretty good local knowledge for, for all of these places. I like adding things like that because I think it just makes a bit of a difference when you go somewhere. You're not just you know looking at the ground in front of your front wheel, but you're there's there's possibilities to do interesting things. There are a couple of rides that we've been wanting to do Pittsburgh to Cumberland, Maryland, for example, the great Allegheny passage, which has gotten only better over the years as they develop the trail. I know it has problems in the spring with mud and some other things, but what's really cool is it's basically traffic free. So you highlight that, but then you highlight things like the Katy trail. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's, there are just so many, you have uh, trails in Hawaii how many of these are actually off-road and mainly and and not so encumbered with traffic? Where possible, I tried to get rides that were off-road or less intimidating. I, I dropped some really good rides that just because the, because of traffic. I mean, there, there's one in Australia. It's a gorgeous ride from Melbourne over to Warrnambool along the Great Coastal Highway. And it's one of the most beautiful drives in in uh, in Australia, but and I've I've cycled it, but you you really wouldn't want to do it. I mean, I I couldn't recommend anyone to do it because, just because of the traffic. It's just too dangerous. So where possible, I tried to get off road. I mean, rails to trails is wonderful. You mentioned the KD Trail. You know, you, you're not dealing with traffic. You're just you're just cycling along this old railway bed, 
I spoke with somebody there who's who's done it five times, and I think by the time I'm talking to someone who's who's liked it enough to do it five times, I'm I'm uh, going to assume that's that's a ride of a lifetime. Other rides you just can't help but be on the traffic on the roads. I mean the Underground Railway route from Mobile up to Canada. A lot of it is traffic free, but you know quite a bit of it isn't. It's two thousand miles, so you're not going to have traffic free all, all the way. But there again, I found someone. Who uh, who's done that entire ride twice, liked it so much they went back and did the two thousand miles all over again. So where possible, I've tried to get ones that were off road or or traffic free. So this book doesn't have maps in it per se, but it has some magnificent photography. How much of that photography did, were you able to do, and where did you get photographs where you didn't? I started at the end of the pandemic. Travel was not really an option, so uh, a lot of this was was researched, sitting on my kitchen table and and going out for my my getting inspired for my own bike rides. In the course of doing this, I mean, there, there were some rides open that opened up in England, here, and um, I was one of the first people to do um, the Canty Way over in Kent, which was that was when I was able to literally to put my bike on a train, go over and do it, and again that that was a Stunning ride that um, Kent is called the Garden of England, and this particular you know, I want to say I, I was I actually did it while I was writing it, writing the book, and it was one of those classic English rides. That, you know, I, I couldn't believe it as I was going along. I mean, you've got um, Canterbury Cathedral, you've got the bluebells. If you go in the spring, there's you know woods filled with bluebells, the white cliffs of Dover. Um, you've got all these fabulous old seaside towns with their fish and chips, and and these you know deep deep woods in in, in Kent. It's just absolutely gorgeous. So that was one I was just able to do while I was actually writing the book because it was you know travel wasn't really a overly possible much of that time. Well, each of your rides offers a distance and a surface and how long it should take to do it and when the best time is to go. Plus a difficulty. How many of these rides do you think the average person could do? As opposed to, you know, somebody who's really an avid cyclist. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a few in there that, you know, are completely out of bounds for anybody. But, I mean, you go up Mauna Kea in, in Hawaii, it's, you know, you know 14,000 feet of vertical climb. I mean, it's... Not yeah. for me. No, it's not for me either. But um, I would say most of the rides in there, I mean, even some of the really long expedition type rides, you, know, you can get, I mean, the one, uh, the one across America. You can get fit on the road. You you you're just not going to start off doing hundred mile days. It's simple as that. But anyone could do that. Um, I mean, you have to have a just a basic level of fitness at least, and a, and a good bicycle. But again, I was talking to people um, in Oregon, and they were saying you know, at the beginning part of that trail, it's really quite nice because there, there's little mechanic places built along the trail. Where you can stop and repair your bike. You know, so you sort of you can work your way into the whole thing and fix your bike and, and get to know it. So if you are doing something like that, so I mean, even a, a big expedition like that is doable. But a lot of the ones in there, and I, I did specifically look for ones that were gentle and easy for people who who want to get into this, who love the idea of going on a bicycle tour. And for them, that could be a ride of a lifetime because it could actually turn into something that, you know, well, that that went really well. As you were just talking about the the... Pittsburgh to Cumberland. I mean, that's a perfect ride for someone who wants to to try out cycle touring. Right. 
you do that one and then other things start becoming possible. You see, you see how easy it can be. When you've got multi-day rides here listed, yeah. people need to either stay somewhere or be self-supported or, you know, bring food or find restaurants. How many of these rides would need to be self-supported? Not that many. Um, okay. uh, there's some, that, you know, some, uh, obviously, I mean, there's a couple of, you know, if you're going on the Silk Road, yeah. Yeah, you better, <laughs> you better take some stuff with you. Right? <laughs> yeah. But a lot of the ones, and, you know, I, I've tried to, to to include, you know, where you can get off the, the you know, because some of them are, are remote, fairly, I mean, the the uh, Blue Ridge uh, Parkway, I mean, you, you need to get off the thing. And I've, I've tried to mention where, you know, the camping possibilities, the, the hotel possibilities, mention you know, try to mention where you know you can do these things right i've tried to make everything as accessible to to people uh, as, as possible i mean again you know some of the ones are are just purely expert stuff but but not many i tried to you know i mean i wanted something in there there's some really tough ones but i i wanted i wanted them to fit the the, the vast majority of cyclists so that anybody and even you know super fit cyclists I and mean, I've done a lot of really hard cycle routes, but my all-time my my favorite route is in that book. Oh, I was going to ask you about that, and it is it's uh, the two hundred mile stretch along the Danube from Passau in Germany to Vienna. It is the nearest thing to a old-fashioned continental cycling ideal I have ever come across. I've done it a couple of times simply because it is just. It's beautiful. You start off in this, you know, medieval river trading port, Passau, and then you follow the Danube downstream. The Danube's carved out its its valley, so you you're not climbing big hills. Right. You're accompanying this river downstream, so it's downhill all the way. Off, it's off, uh, you know, traffic free for vast majority of it, and you're just going through these little villages. You, you know, link up with little villages with these, you know, pretty onion dome churches along the banks of this river. You know, a big stately river. Um, it is just idyllic. There's ferry. The, the trail runs on both sides of the of the river, and there's ferries that go across. So if you think, okay, I'd like to be on the on the woodsy side today, okay, you stay on that side. But oh, wait a second, I think I would like to go over and just get some shopping or go to one of the little pubs in the village. There's ferries. I mean, quite regularly spaced ferries. And if you if your legs get tired and think, well, actually, I think I'll just finish my day on, on a boat. There are ferries that go downstream as well. And you see these families doing it, the grandparents and, you know, six, seven, eight-year-old kids going along it. And they're spending five days cycling this this 200 miles. And it goes, you know, basically the whole, through the heart of Austria. So you're covering an entire country, 200 miles, but it's achievable adventure. Anybody can do it. And you and it's like riding into a, a, a postcard. Though, I mean, no, a travel poster. My second favorite ride, which was kind of neck and neck, is much tougher. It's in Wales. It goes from Chepstow up to Hollyhead. And you go over three uh, Welsh mountain ranges, including the Brecon Beacons, which is where the SAS do their training. So the Welsh hills aren't high, but they are tough. But it is absolutely beautiful. You're going up these, these mountain passes, gospel passes, and the view from the top of that is just stunning. And you're literally going through the countryside for which the word picturesque was coined in the 18th century. This is where those old landscape painters, J.M.W. Turner and all that, this is where they came to, to paint. 
And because there were so many painters going out there, it literally, that was where the word came from, picturesque, this 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 gorgeous, uh, hilly Welsh countryside. And yeah, that that's my second favorite. It's much tougher than the than the the Danube, but it's it's amazing. You do a lot of work for National Geographic, and their yes. their products or their projects are always epic. Yes, no, yeah. yes they are. <laughs> that's the word that I, that I that comes to mind for me. They're epic, and this is really an kind of an epic book. And I think people might look at it and say, "I want to do X number of rides out of it." How would you suggest people book a ride like this or one of these rides? So forgetting the U.S. for a minute, because most of my listeners are in the U.S., although I have quite a few in Europe. If you were to say, well, I want to do this, why Kent, England, Canty Way? Canty Way, yes. Canty Way. How would you go about, you know, because most of these are by yourself. You just go and do it, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I mean, okay, you, you book your, you, you you book yourself a, a flight to London. Um, do, do you take your own bike? Well, you 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 can. I have in the past, but you can. You, there are plenty of places here where you can you can rent bikes for a okay. you know period. In that particular one, you just get yourself on the train down to um, uh, Ashford and you leave Charing Cross or Waterloo Station, and um, Ashford to take a train to Y. And off you go. Start off, and it makes a, it makes a, a lovely loop uh, through, through the through the countryside. And you know, if again you go in May, April and May, and you have you see these these uh, forests, the you know, ancient woodlands carpeted with these bluebells. I mean, it's, they're just electric, and you know, it looks fake at first, but it isn't. You know, and you know, you 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 go up you know, these little seaside towns. You know, classic tacky English seaside towns where you. You get your jelly deals, your whelks, your fish and chips. Uh, what's the oysters? Gosh, they're there. And then um, you, you come around, you get the white cliffs of Dover. You're right on top of them. You look out, you can see France. And there's little monuments to Dame Vera Lynn, the Canterbury Cathedral. Um, you know, there's just you know, so much in Rye. It goes through the old, the ancient port of Rye. And I mean, you, you can stop and have a, you could actually stop and spend the night at a, um, a pub there. That um, was rebuilt in 1402, I think. And rebuilt Queen in Elizabeth, 1402. Yeah, rebuilt. <laughs> and Queen Elizabeth the first stayed there, and um, the same with the Mermaid Inn in Rye. And they, um, back in the, I read a description, a brilliant description of this place in the 18th century, where it was it was a hotbed of smugglers. I mean, the revenue men did not go into this pub. Now it's very genteel now. But in those days, and this description of these guys with, you know, the cloud of tobacco smoke from these guys smoking their pipes with pistols sitting right on the on the table while they're drinking. And, you, know, you just didn't mess with these guys. <laughs> but, yes, you can you can go. And there's a room upstairs that has a, has a secret door uh, uh, lead, leads out of the place. Um, uh, yeah, it's you know, th- there's some wonderful things to see and experience in these uh, in these rides. Well, I think that we have uh, given people, your descriptions are so colorful. I think people are getting the idea. The book is beautiful. It is one you're going to just kind of salivate over all these different places you might want to go. And I think that if I were to want to go on a bike ride without taking a 
a, a professional touring company, that the, that there are plenty of rides in this book, 100 Bike Rides of a Lifetime, The World's Ultimate Cycling Experiences by Rolf Smith. I, I think you would want to get a copy and find your next 10 years worth of rides. Well, I have to say, I, I found a fair few because some of them opened while I was doing this book. There's a couple in New Zealand. There's one that goes along the edge of a gorge. And they, you know, they cantilevered this this bike path on literally on the cliff face. Yeah, that's and, not doesn't sound like something I would love, but I get what you're saying. <laughs> it's like yeah. mountain bikers well, it go cool on those little tiny yeah. downhill crazy things. Well, this is awesome, Roth. Where can listeners get a copy? It, uh, is it available in all the usual places? I think it should be available in all the usual places, or or through National Geographic. Oh, right, um, right through National Geographic, uh, and, right. Um, into regular bookshops as far as, yeah. What are you working on now, now that this project's out? Well, I've got a new adventure. Um, and of course you do. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, it's even it's even slower than cycling. I'm going to be living on a narrowboat, a classic English narrowboat, and exploring our 2,000 miles of canals. Our canal network was built in the 18th century, early 19th century, and um, there's still Still out there's 2,000 miles of them going through the countryside in England and Wales. And I've got a 58-foot narrowboat, and I'll be uh, moving aboard in the new year. Are you the captain? I'm the, uh, yes, absolutely. This is just you? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's cool. Are you going to do any broadcasting live? You should. Well, I want to to do that and and do um, do an ongoing, you know, blog, substack, something sure. like that to, um, you know, it's the, our, our canal network is, is stunning. It was started being built in the 1760s and up to about 1840, it, it, it built the industrial revolution and people don't realize it's, it's a hidden gem over here. There's this vast network, but you know, you go to Birmingham and they've got more canals there than Venice. Huh? Who knew? Yeah. Yeah. So are you going to put a bike on the boat? I'm going to try. Yeah. Um, there, there's not much room in it. The operative word is narrow. In a narrow, narrow boat. right. Okay. Because it has to go through the canals. It's long, but it's, it's six foot, 10 inch wide at the outside. The, the 18th century canals here were, uh, were narrow gauge. Because they also, I mean, they, they, there's tunnels going underneath the moors. I mean, there's one tunnel that's nearly four miles long. How is this boat powered? A uh, uh, diesel engine. Okay. It's quite off grid. It's got a, a you know a diesel engine. I've got solar solar electricity, a uh, wood stove, and um, gas uh, gas. Send me a picture of your boat. Oh, I will. I will. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a lovely boat. It was built up in Yorkshire, and that's where that's where it's moored at the moment on the uh, Stainforth and Keith. When are you Canal. leaving? Over um in the, early in the new year. I, I've spent some time on the boat already. My husband's going to be very envious. This would be the, the the trip of the lifetime for him. He loves the water and he loves boats. Oh, well, um, yeah. Boats and bikes. What could be better, right? Uh, exactly. You know, I mean, you find, you know, I, I always like, because, you know, bicycle, touring my bicycle is wonderful because it's slow, it's intimate. Right. And I found something that's even slower <laughs> and more intimate. <laughs> and unlike and unlike on a bicycle where you, you, know, you carry all your stuff on the bike, I've got a galley, well-stocked galley. I've got a shower. I don't. I don't have a TV. I won't. I won't have one on board. I don't want a TV. But you're going to have a computer. 
I do have a computer because I got to do my my work. And but bookshelves, decks of cards, um, the old game of old Parcheesi game, you know that kind of stuff. We've been speaking with Rolf Smith. He is a journalist. He is an author. He's a photographer. He's done some really cool things. His newest project, 100 Bike Rides of a Lifetime from National Geographic, is available now. We will watch for your new boat tour for next year. And thank you so much for talking with me. I hope you have a happy new year. You too. Thank you very much. And let's stay in touch. All right. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. My thanks to Rolf Smith for joining me on the show today. You can get a copy of his new book, 100 Bike Rides of a Lifetime, from National Geographic or wherever you get your books. I look forward to learning more about his adventures on the canals with his cool narrow boat, too. Thank you for tuning in today. You can find show notes, photos, links, and a written transcript of the show at OutspokenCyclist.com. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and X, a.k.a. Twitter. When you subscribe to the show, please use the rating system to let the algorithms know what you think and move us up the rankings. With this episode, we're off and running and have a lot of new topics and guests lining up for the 2024 cycling season. On our next episode, we'll speak with Dave Simmons, the executive director of Ride Illinois, as well as Mark and Cal Norstag from Paragon Machine Works, our domestic producer of precision cycling frame building components as Mark passes the torch and the keys to Cal. I hope you enjoyed the show. Stay safe, stay well, and remember, there is always time for a ride. Well, unless there's snow and ice on the ground, then just listen to more cycling podcasts or watch a cycling movie. Bye-bye. Joining us today on The Outspoken Cyclist with Diane Jenks. We welcome your thoughts and contributions on our Facebook page, or visit OutspokenCyclist.com to leave a comment on any episode. We will be back next week with new guests, topics, conversations, and news in the world of cycling. Subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app and you'll never miss an episode. The Outspoken Cyclist is a copyrighted production of BBL Promotions with the assistance of WJCU-FM Cleveland, a service of John Carroll University. Thanks again for listening, ride safely, and we'll see you next week.